Good morning and good to be back and to be with you. And we continue our series in that rather enigmatic part of the New Testament called Second Corinthians. It's one of those books that a lot of us avoid. When we're reading through the New Testament, it's like, oh, can I just skip over this book? Because it's kind of hard to figure out. I mean, who likes listening to one half of a phone conversation anyways? It's just kind of tough. And uh, please join me as we pray, as we begin. Father, you're a great person, a sovereign God. Uh, Your power is beyond our ability to comprehend. I mean, how much power would a person have to have in order to create the universe? It's just so mind-blowing. And Father, help us to stay focused on your power as we as a country and really a world move through this crisis that we call coronavirus. Uh, There is an uncertainty to what lies ahead over the coming weeks and months. Thank you that as we step into that uncertainty, we do not travel alone. The good God is with us. The God that we've been singing about You're the God who fights for your people. You're the God who cares for your people. And so we're wondering how this greatness and goodness will express itself in the weeks to come. But this morning we want to say, and we may have to say this repeatedly, we trust you. We trust you. You have shown yourself in Scripture and in life to be the good and great God. And so today we trust you. We pray that things that we encounter today in this sermon would be of encouragement and benefit to your people. We pray this through Christ. Amen. If you're like the average Balmoralite, you have a fascination for the new. How many times this week has somebody approached you and said, hey, what's new? And you've got to think. Usually we lie and we say, nothing. Of course that's not true. It's all sorts of new things. There are new things here at church. You've seen Alan Shakurta's new smartphone? Oh, it's a beauty. That's new. Never thought Alan would have a smartphone, so that's encouraging. How many of you have seen Jared and Michelle's new acreage? Been there for a while now, but we just got up there to see it recently and had a wonderful time. It's great. Uh, You call them up and you ask for a tour of their new acreage. And what about the Wings new SUV? Have you seen that? Whoa! Makes me want to go out and get one. Looks terrific. My wife and I have been reading through John Grissom's new novel, The Guardian. What a good read. I really like John Grissom. He's a Christian man, and every once in a while, his Christian convictions leak into the narrative that he's writing. That's terrific. While we were on vacation, we missed home so much, we went online to check in the, check out the Red Deer Advocate, and we heard the news that there is a new hospital expansion coming to Red Deer. Keep your fingers crossed. (laughs) We hope that it happens and happens soon. Well, in 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21, 
St. Paul sketches what's new. He sketches some things that are new, new for him and new for his readers because they've met Christ. Let's read the passage, reading from the NIV this morning, beginning at verse 11, chapter 5. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our minds, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 16. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, there's a lot in that passage, and unfortunately we don't have enough time to do it justice, but that's often the case. In fact, I'm going to shave down our passage a little bit here on the run. Let's begin with 11 through 15. Contrary to those who have, been, who have accused him of questionable motives, you may remember from some of the earlier sections in 2 Corinthians that after Paul had selflessly traveled to Corinth and helped start a work, uh, planted a Christian community, they kind of turned on him. It's like when you raise kids. They hit those teen years, and sometimes you feel like, man, I can't believe they're turning on me. Well, this congregation, in part, was turning against Paul, and they started to criticize him, and they said, we're not sure you're the man that we thought you were. We don't know that we can trust you. We don't know that you've really been straight up with us. And this must have caused caused great anguish to Paul, and so... In 11 to 15, he defends himself. He doesn't want to defend himself. Most of us don't like to be in a position where we have to defend ourselves, but sometimes it just has to be done. And what he does is he appeals to the true motivations in his life, the real reason reasons why he does what he does, because there are some people who have been blackballing him. Those two motivations, of course, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, You probably have heard many sermons on this. In verses 11 to 13, he said he he is inspired by the fear of the Lord. 
And to understand what he means there in verse 11, you need to go back to last week's passage, verse 10, where we read, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul had the sense that his life was open to God. It was an open book to God. And he knew what had motivated him, and, and he was inspired by the fact that one day he would stand before the living God and have to give an account of his life and his ministry, and he was confident that all would be well. He's inspired by the fear of the Lord. Just knowing there's another set of eyes on you can really change things, can't it? It's called photo radar. Just knowing there's another set of eyes on your driving can work wonders. There's one intersection in particular that has been rather expensive for me. And when I travel to it, I now sit up and I take note because there is a very real accountability. The arm of the law has a way of just reaching out into your pocketbook and relieving of you of some of your hard-earned cash. Well, Paul is sensitive to the accountability that exists between him and God. In verses 14 and 15, he says, Secondly, another motivation, he is compelled by the love of Christ. That is, the way that Christ's love has expressed itself to him, the way that it has worked it out in his own personal journey. The love of Christ is the reason why Paul does what he does, verse 14. Like Christians down through the ages, the death of Christ was not just an intellectual pursuit. It wasn't just a historical fact. We know that on April Third or fourth, I can't remember, A.D. 33, Jesus died outside of Jerusalem. But for him, it was more than just a historical fact. It was something that moved him. He was moved by his death. You can read obituaries in the Red Your Advocate that don't particularly move you. But then one day you're reading through and you see the name Howard Northey. And all of a sudden you stop. And you read that differently because he's one of us. He was one of ours. And it moves you, and Paul says, the death of Christ has so moved me. When he realized what Jesus did for him, that he gave himself away on the cross, Paul was moved to repentance and a life of what what he describes as decreasing self-indulgence. Look at verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was was raised again. No longer was I the king of Paul's life. Christ became Lord. And so Paul now lives for Christ. Why did Jesus die? Fair question. It's a question that any of us could ask, a neighbor could ask, somebody that you're sharing your faith with could ask. Why did Christ die? Why did he give himself away on the cross? There's actually a number of answers to that question in the Bible. There isn't just one answer. Generally, we say to save us. But to save us from what? In this particular passage, he emphasizes the idea that Jesus died to save us from ourselves. Have you ever thought that you needed to be saved from yourself? 
Paul said that was one of the reasons and purposes of the atonement. He wanted to save us from a life of self-interest. And we all know what that's like. We've all gone through bad periods where, you know, we're always thinking about ourselves. Usually that's when you're ill. Or if you're going through some kind of emotional distress, you just pull inwards and you just think about yourself. A couple of months ago when I was going through my elbow thing, man, I would spend days just focused on myself. It was pathetic. But that's often what we do. And Paul said that Jesus died to save us from a life of self-interest. I'm sure many of you heard the story about the Special Olympics in Seattle in the mid-70s. And uh, there were some contestants. They were lined up for the 100-yard dash, and the gun went off, and away they went. And um, most of them were making fairly good headway, except there was one fellow in particular. He tripped, and he hit the ground, and he started crying. And uh, two of his buddies stopped while the others ran on. Two of his buddies stopped, and they turned back, and they helped him up to his feet. And linking arms, the three of them walked uh, until they got to the finish line. They just had this sense that even though they were going to forfeit any opportunity to win the race, they just had this sense that what they were doing was right, and they did it. A life void of self-interest. Let's move on to 16 to 21. In addition to new motivations, Paul saw himself as the bearer of a message which brought great benefits into the lives of of those who received it. That's the good news about the good news, is that there are amazing benefits that come our way. Like what? Well, first, verse 16, it, get, it gave Paul a new way of seeing, a new perspective, a new point of view. And you'll notice in verse 16 that he admits that. He says, Uh, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. He once had a view of Jesus where Jesus was suspect. He thought of Jesus as a fake Messiah. If Jesus would have been the real Messiah, he would have brought the Jewish people back into power, right? And that's not what happened. He was rejected by the religious and other authorities. And so Paul at that time in his life figured that Jesus was a fraud. But that all changed when he met Christ on the road to Damascus. Think about how your view of Jesus has been rehabilitated over the years. I grew up hearing the name of Christ. I grew up singing the hymns of the faith about Jesus. I grew up sitting through countless sermons. I can remember as a young kid hearing a preacher by the name of Billy Graham who came to Winnipeg. And he heralded the good news. Went in one ear and came right out the other. But then in the summer of 1970, I encountered Christ. He addressed me. He spoke to me. How did he speak to you? He spoke to me through the story of the Bible. As I began thinking about the Bible and hearing the Bible spoken, I realized that that story was my story. It wasn't just talking about people who lived a long time ago. It was talking about me. And the Lord made me aware of my neediness and my spiritual poverty, and he awakened faith within me. How did he do that? I don't know. I didn't have faith. I had faith. I didn't ask for faith. I started having faith, and it was a little embarrassing. 
because admitting it would mean that I was now stepping into the faith of my parents. And, you know, those were days when there was a lot of friction and tension between parents and their teenage children. So there was a little bit of humble pie there for me. How has your view of Jesus been upgraded over the years? What I have found in my own life is that Jesus just keeps getting better and smarter. And, you know, you you just roll out the adjectives, the positive adjectives, and that's Jesus. There is way more to Jesus Christ than I ever imagined. There is way more generosity. There is way more mercy. There is way more wisdom. My view of Christ has changed too. So Paul said that's one of the new things that the message of the gospel has brought into his life. And now in verse 17, he talks about how it has resulted in a new way of being. It was a new way of seeing, and now it's a new way of being. If you don't hear anything else about my sermon, I hope you hear this next section. I think it's just so important. Paul had an intriguing way of locating Christians in the plan of God. Where are we in the plan of God, we sometimes think? Well, he describes Christians as a new creation. Verse 17, the Greek reads something like, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, no verb. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. That's what he wants to emphasize. Where have we heard the language of new creation before? Well, if you've ever read the Old Testament book of Isaiah, I know many of you have. The prophet Isaiah, at one point in the book, got on his tippy toes, and he looked into the future, and lo and behold, what he saw was creation remade and renewed. He's the one who first came up with the line, new heavens and new earth. And then when you come to the very last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, we discover that, again, that God will remake heaven and earth. All of Scripture looks forward to the time when God will make all things new. So what Paul seems to be saying here is that presently, right now, we Christians have an experience of the future. Thanks to Jesus, the new creation has worked its way back from the future, has worked its way back into the present. We already enjoy what we call a foretaste of the future. Do you realize that, don't you? That your salvation experience right now is pretty minimalistic? That the best is yet to come? We just get a little snippet. But the lion's share of it, it's coming. We have a foretaste of the future. When Jesus returns, foretaste will give way to the full-blown, renewed, and remade heaven and earth. How do you like your foretaste? How's it tasting? Well, I mean... I think we should think of it as an appetizer, but, you know, appetizers can be pretty good. Then comes the main course. I think in some ways this foretaste is pretty grand, but in other ways I think we feel pretty conflicted. We don't like to talk about this, but a lot of us have a lot of conflicted moments in the Christian life. We praise God that he's already launched the end times. We're not waiting for the end times. He's already launched the end times. Proof of that is new creation. The beauty of what is to come has begun to leak into our lives, but rather strangely. Why do I say strangely? Because although already we have been raised to new life, have you read that in the New Testament? 
we have been raised with Christ. Although we have already been raised to new life, we're still waiting a bodily resurrection. How do you put those two facts together? Or already the Bible says we have died to sin. Well, I don't know about you, but I still have a lot of indwelling sin to process in my life, and I suspect you do too. How do you explain that? Already Satan has been defeated, yet his destruction is future. And so there's this tension in Scripture that is sometimes referred to as already, not yet. The already is the foretaste, and Paul says we've already started down that road. Praise God for the foretaste. Lastly, Paul says, um, in addition to new motivation, new way of seeing, new way of being, there is this new way of relating. He sums it up in a word that Canadians should be really familiar with. It's the word reconciliation. (laughs) You might be tired of hearing that word. It gets bandied around in the newspaper so often. Nobody ever stops to define it. Nobody ever stops to explain what it means. This is the buzzword. And in certain circles, if you use it, this is good. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But he sums up what God has done to make possible these new things with the word reconciliation. Five times in this passage, 18 to 21, he refers to the concept of reconciliation using either a verb or a noun. What is it? It would be good to know. What is reconciliation? Well, in short, it is what God has done for us so we can be on good terms with him. It's what God has done for us so we can be on good terms with him. What were we before? This isn't pretty. Previously, we were hostiles. Previously, we were enemies. Previously, we ignored him, disregarded him, disobeyed him. But something happened. You had a Damascus Road experience. But something happened. It put an end to the former hostility, and that something is reconciliation. Now Paul talks about the author, the agent, the announcers, and so on. Who is the author of reconciliation? Look at verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself. God is the grand architect. He is the genius behind what we call reconciliation, salvation, and relationship with God. God thunk it up. It's great. Again, verse 18, who is its agent? Well, he says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Jesus, acting on behalf of his Father, did what you might call the heavy lifting of dying and rising. He is the agent. Who are its announcers? Well, why would you need announcers? Well, whenever you get good news, what do you want to do with it? When something new happens in your life, what do you want to do with this news? You want to announce it. You want to share it. You want to spread it. You want to talk about it, right? Who are its announcers? Who announces this great good news of reconciliation? Well, Paul for starters, and his colleagues, and then by extension, us. Amazing. God gives mortals 
the privilege of announcing the good news of reconciliation. But wait, is that a good idea? <laughs> to put the message of reconciliation in the hands of the like of, likes of us? We're flaky. We underperform. Thankfully, the message isn't nearly as dependent upon the messenger as some of us fear. It turns out that the message has an inherent power to it. It's like a seed, an old shriveled, looks dead seed. You put it in the ground, you put a little water on it. Who to thunk? I don't know if this is true, but I think I read somewhere that archaeologists found grains of, I don't know, I hope this isn't an urban legend, Don Falk. You can help me with this. They had these ancient, you know, uh, grain, grain seeds, and they were able to get them to grow. So there's something inherent about the message itself that is powerful, that has the, it is the, even when the, even when the messengers are subpar. Don't you hate it when the messengers are subpar? Some televangelist flying around the world in his jet, you know, convincing vulnerable old people to send more and more money to him. Like, you just hate that when the messengers of the gospel are subpar. Jabin reminded me of this. Paul has something to say about his attitude toward subpar messengers. Philippians chapter 1, verse 15. It is true, Paul would agree with what I'm saying today, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. So Paul was faced with a similar situation where you got some really goofy people. And he's even willing to grant that they are brothers and sisters. You got these really goofy people, and then you got some straight shooters like him. And he raises the question, he says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Talk about an inflated confidence in the message itself. Isn't that great? Well, coming now to the end, um, what exactly is the message of reconciliation? Paul has three notes. Three notes. The first note is, God was there. On Good Friday, God was there when reconciliation was accomplished. Look at verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. That's a reference to Good Friday. When Jesus was being nailed to the cross, God was working. If he would have been there, watching the proceedings, grisly as they might be, you could honestly have said, you know what's happening here today? God is working. While Jesus was suffering on the cross, God was finding a way to put an end to the hostility between us and himself. And when Jesus screamed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what that was? That was the sound of reconciliation. That's what reconciliation can sound like. It was a bloody, messy business for sure. That's his first note. His second note, again, verse 19, 
He says, God was showing the world that he had found a way to deal with our sin without having to judge us. Look at verse 19. Right in the middle it says, not counting people's sins against them. Some people have this picture of God as a cosmic boogeyman or, you know, a vice principal. It's just somebody up there who's looking, he's looking for people who are misbehaving and he can really nail them. Well, part of the whole salvation project was that God wanted to find a way to deal with the problem of sin, but not to count people's sins against them. How do you do that? And now we get into some very deep theology. And we can say it simply, but it'll take more than a lifetime to unpack. How did he do this? How did he deal with our sin without having to judge us? Instead of counting our sins against us, he counted our sins against his son, Jesus. Brilliant. It's brilliant. It's changed our lives. There's a third note. God was... What was he doing here? Just picture Good Friday and all that you know. Mel Gibson spelled it out for us. Somebody said to Mel Gibson one time, they complained about his movie, The Passion of the Christ. It's just too rough. He said, I toned it down. That's how bad it was. What was going on? God was... Well, let me read the verse for it first. Verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, that's heavy. Let me try to summarize it for you. God was treating him. Who's the him? Jesus. God was treating him, his son, as sin. He was treating his son as a sinner. So he could treat us sinners as sons in right standing with God. God was treating his son as sin, as a sinner, so he could treat us sinners as sons in right standing with him. John Calvin called this the sweet exchange that took place on the cross. Isn't that great? What does it mean? Well, it means that the barrier is gone. At one time, our sin got in the way of enjoying fellowship and relationship with God. Our sin made God mad. Boy, God can get mad. Read the Old Testament. I don't understand people who say God can't mad. He's just really good. He's just really nice. And he is good and he is nice, but sometimes he really gets mad. Our sin made God mad, but he's angry no more. That's the good news. The anger has been lifted which is why he can offer forgiveness and fellowship to us. If, and it's an important if, if we trust his wise way of brokering the arrangement. He brokered an arrangement. That was his part. Through his agent, Jesus, he had a part. And the Spirit works in our lives. He has a part. And then the good news comes to us, and we have to make a decision. We have a choice to make. Will I embrace the wisdom of God's way of brokering this arrangement? And trust him. And trust him we must. As it says in Acts chapter 4, salvation, excuse me, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. 
to reject this offer would be the height of folly, and surely it would again raise the ire of God. You don't want to go there. Not after all God has done. Bent over backwards, sent his son, hammered out salvation for us on the cross. You don't want to say no to that. We began by asking, so what's new? And we've noted there there are many new things that come to us. New motivations, new ways of looking at Jesus, participation in the new creation. Do these new things resonate with you? Do you need any of these things? Or do you have them? Or would you like to have them? The amazing thing is that when a person surrenders to Christ, when he she bends the knee, they're ours. It's pretty good. It's pretty sweet. Have you been there? Have you done that? Have you crossed the line, as it were? Have you come over to God's side? He's waiting. He's still waiting for a while. He won't wait forever, but he's, he's waiting right now. And when you take that step, then you enter into his new creation. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for a man like Paul and even all the trouble that Paul went through and even his rocky relationship with this church at Corinth because if that wouldn't have happened, we wouldn't have had some of these great passages. Thank you for the way that Paul is able to take the gospel and apply it to even difficult hardships that someone like him faced. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live out the fear of God and the love of Christ and that we would be filled with joy in knowing that you have marvelously prepared for your people this great gift of reconciliation. Thank you that we can go through this day knowing that you're not mad at us. We don't like it when people are mad at us. Thank you that you are no longer mad at us. Thanks to Jesus.